Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you here with us for episode 33. And today we're going to be talking about money. Money, money, money. Believe it or not, money has been in the news a lot lately from stimulus packages and the inflationary concerns related to that to uh, cryptocurrencies, the rise of cryptocurrencies and their use as money versus the dollar. Needless to say, what money is and how it works and how important it is is always an important topic of conversation, but especially now, it's it's being questioned in new and interesting ways that are that are worth addressing. And and as we thought about what we'd like to talk about, which of these specific issues to talk about, we've talked about inflation before. We realize that really what we want to talk about is a little bit deeper, is about what money is at its base, at its core, what is money? How did it come about? How did we get from hundreds of years ago bartering for goods to where we are today and what that means for the system we have now? Because the story is not not nearly as intuitive as it seems. And I think it's like of all the things you take for granted in your life, the fact that we use a currency, some kind of money to go and buy things and exchange things and that that's that's useful. That's that's one of those things that's so basic to your daily interactions that it's rarely questioned. You take for granted the fact that this that you can translate any object in the world into terms of money and then spend that money to acquire something entirely different. But when you realize how money came about and how it's been treated historically, the way governments have treated it, the way it it develops naturally and it does develop naturally, then you can start to unfold some of these layers and see why there's an appeal in cryptocurrencies, see why there is inflation, see why banks behave the way they do, see all kinds of things. It's one of those factors that is just underneath the surface that affects everything, but nobody discusses and nobody really understands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I mean, it's something that that I'm well aware of because as someone who who's an amateur, you know, enthusiast in economics, I do discuss money. I do discuss currency more often than than your average person. And yet I often fail to understand the underlying systems that affect currency and money in today's day and age. You know, even after multiple attempts at studying, there are still <laughs> right. there are still systems that I just struggle to get my head around. And sometimes it feels like if you want to understand the currency system, you have to get a get a degree in in rocket science in terms of uh, mathematical equations of of how of how balancing these books works. But anyways, <laughs> if rocket science were a field full of propaganda in addition to actual useful information, hopefully that's <laughs> not the case with rocket science. Hopefully, hopefully it's not full of propaganda. It's not trying to sell you all kinds of political theories. Uh, Some of my favorite news stories lately is uh, about the Doge coins, where you get this guy who creates these coins that have I don't even know if he created coins. He just created a picture of a coin. So he created a cryptocurrency as a joke. As a joke. It has a picture of a dog with a ridiculous like grin, like open mouth grin on its face. Some people threw money at it. And he's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? <laughs> Bitcoin prices are, are skyrocketing or 
semi-skyrocketing. I know there was a recent downturn, but if you go watch them over uh, over time, they have. If you had invested in Bitcoin early on, you could sell it now for a ridiculous amount of money relative to how much you invested. And that's true with a lot of the other ones. There's Ethereum. There's there, I think there are probably like a dozen at this point. I've heard of at least four or five. I was about to say there's there's many more than a dozen, Dan, but there are at least a dozen that have gotten widespread appeal. Right. And recently, Elon Musk was famously invested a bunch of money in cryptocurrency and was talking about how this was an important part of the future. And you may or may not know Elon Musk happens to command a lot of attention. When he one day he noted that he thought Tesla's stock was overpriced and Tesla's stock dropped 10%. <laughs> like people, people listen to this guy obviously he's he's really influential he's one of the wealthiest people in the world elon musk is nuts <laughs> he's he's wonderful the, the the things he does are are crazy it makes me question whether or not he even values his own financial interests <laughs> anyways because the things he says on social media have devastating effects for his right. own bank accounts at times and sometimes he'll say things that are questionable in terms of of manipulating the market, you know, of talking up a stock that he just invested in. And yeah. I'm like, this is nuts. Like, you guys yeah. understand that he's a player in this game. Yeah, if you he invests, If he invests a billion dollars in cryptocurrency and then says, hey, everyone, invest in cryptocurrency, you know, I wonder yeah. what his plan is. I wonder, <laughs> I, what, I, wonder, I wonder what's going through his head no. right now. <laughs> We talked about his Tesla company in our last episode. We're like, this is not even a profitable company. This company would have tanked if, if it wasn't getting massive amounts of government subsidies. But on the other hand, he's also innovating at the highest levels. And so it's – yeah, he's, he's, he's a strange he's, he's figure. He's innovating at the highest levels and that includes innovating within the artificial rules of the games yes, that we're currently playing true. on. That's true. And and he's playing that game. Yeah. You know? And so there there is respect for that. I mean, he's he's one of many who's looking at cryptocurrencies. There's there are people trying to regulate them. Governments who are like, people are investing in this instead of our money. What do we do about that? And for a time, it looked like they were going to be shut down. But that has all backed off right now. Right now, it seems pretty safe in terms of is the government going to start interfering with these in the short run? Doesn't seem so. All of that should be raising questions, right? Why why the interest? Why are people looking at these things? What should you should you be buying gold? Is that right for you? Call this number for free brochure. <laughs> if you happen to be uh listen to talk radio with the conservative voices, you'll find that they're advertising gold all over the place and have been for some time as a I kind have, of I have never heard a uh, conservative talk radio that didn't have at least one ad for gold. <laughs> In any right. given segment, you know, in any right. given chunk that I listened to, there was at least one ad for gold. <laughs> right. It's been right. that way for years now. Right. And that is only increasing with the with the the cryptocurrency bubble question mark, as people describe it. Is it a bubble? We'll see. Obviously, this is important and this is actually shaping the our economy as it goes forward. Yeah, not just our economy, but decisions that individuals are making yeah, you know individuals yeah. are being made or broken but because of the choices that you make in, in an economy like today you know it's with many i mean this isn't the only aspect of that economy you know you can look at the housing market as people discuss is this a bubble or is it not because whether or not it's a bubble makes a big difference you know if this thing's never going away then maybe investing's not a bad idea but if it is a bubble then it quickly becomes a terrible idea. So, <laughs> right. so it's very important to know what's going on. 
right? You get people investing lots into the housing market as it's popping. And yeah, it's a a great way to lose a lot of money. (laughs) It's a great way to lose everything. We want to get into the details of how cryptocurrency is different from more standard forms of money that we're used to. But before we do that, it's it's going to be so much more so much more useful for you to step back and look at where does money come from initially? How does it develop? How is it useful? And how do we go from that from a barter system, as Brad was saying? And we're going to start there. And to do that, we're going to go back to our state of nature example. And this state of nature example is going to be interesting because it's going to be one that, while being hypothetical, is based on not just abstract ideas or principles, but on what actually happened in the world many times over, over and over again, this has actually happened. And what that is, is that I produce a good and Dan produces a good, and they're two different goods. I produce berries and Dan fishes. No, you've-, you've I'm the berry man. You're the berry man. That's still my Never job. mind. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm good for one thing in this world, Brad. Don't take that from me. <laughs> I'm the fisherman, Dan's the berry man, and as we've discussed before, I may want some of Dan's berries, he may want some of my fish, and so we trade with each other, and that's called barter, and and it tends to work pretty well, especially when you're talking about two people. We don't need anything else. I can trade my fish for my berry for his berries based off of how many I want versus how much of my own fish I want. But then as more people enter this community and now you've got more resources, now you've got someone who's producing bread, someone who's producing rudimentary tools like spears, you know, someone who's just using their own labor. They're very good at building homes. And I want to trade with all these people. And so I trade using my fish. But then I stumble into a problem. I run into someone who doesn't like fish. They say, oh, no, I'm not interested in fish, but I am interested in berries. And so I say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy more berries. I'm going to trade more fish for more berries than I actually want to consume. And some of those berries that I take from Dan, I'm not going to consume, but I'm going to use them to trade with the man for the bread that I want. And what I've done there is I've started treating these berries as a commodity, as a commodity that not only I want, but others want. And I'm going to use that berry not for consumption, but for further trade. And in that moment, those berries become money. They become money for me. And I use them as such. Now, obviously, berries may be one one of the worst (laughs) kinds of money you've ever heard because berries last a matter of days. They're easily destroyed. You know, you can only carry so many berries effectively. And so that creates an issue. There is some value to berries. They're valuable, especially in this smaller community where food is one of the most important resources. They're very valuable. They're easily divisible. They're they're basically all the same. You know, they have they have consistent value, berry to berry, for the most part. So there is some value to it. And there there's widespread desirability. People like berries. And so they they work decently. As a commodity, as the community grows, I quickly realize that I need something better than berries. I need something that I can store to buy later. I need something I can travel with. And so I'm looking for a commodity that people want, that's divisible, that has all of these characteristics that I can then use to trade to increase the efficiency of my trade, Dan. Right. So historically, and I I really like the example of berries because historically, 
often one of the things that develops early on is eggs. Eggs are often a early form of currency because they, like you said, widespread demand. There's per egg, a single egg is not that much value, which means you can adjust. You could, you know, you could say, I'll give you seven eggs or eight eggs, and you can kind of barter on that line. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you want something big, how many eggs is a house worth? And what is the person who's trading you the house for the eggs going to do with that many eggs, right? right? As soon as yeah, things can, start to get more complex. Can they trade them for other things fast enough before those eggs right, go bad? Right, before they go bad. Right, right. Obviously, they don't want that many to consume. And and at that point, as, you get, as the goods get more and more complicated, you need something of a higher base value. And as you said, something that lasts longer than a food item. But a food item is wonderful. In the very early stages, because everybody wants food. It's inherently valuable already. And so for people to trade in terms of food is easy. And this, the way that economists talk about it, there's a, there's a coincidence of wants when, you, when you're in a barter system. You have to happen to have what the other person wants, and they have mm-hmm. to happen to have what you want. As Brad was saying, when you switch to, when you find some intermediary, that makes things go much smoother. And that intermediary has to be something that generally everybody wants or at least can use for money. And you can see the evolution already. What are, think You can think about it. Brad mentioned some of them. What are the things that make this useful as money? And so throughout time, what's going to happen naturally in the market as people are bartering and trading with each other is they're going to hold on to and use – those monies that are more effective. And by more effective, we mean a number of things. We mean that they're easily divisible, that as Dan said, you can divide them up. You know, it's not one large thing. An example of something that's hard to be divisible is livestock. Livestock makes a decent yeah. commodity. It's valuable, has a lot of other properties, but it's not easily divisible. You know, one one cow is worth a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. And so it's hard to, to, to use your cow in order to purchase something as small as a shoe or, or some berries, etc. Um, the other thing is fungible. You want the property of each of those things to be worth about the same. So, for example, with livestock, not all cows are created equal. And so they're not fungible. Unlike eggs, where eggs, for the most part, are fungible. Each egg is about as good as any other egg. And so that's another quality that becomes important, inherently valuable. It needs to have worth to people beyond that of money. Otherwise, at some point, you know, otherwise it never becomes money in the first place. It needs to be stable. It needs to last a long time and it needs to be lightweight so that you can transport it easily and actually be able to purchase things with it. Right. Which means you want it to have a lot of value per you know, for little weight, it's, it's, it's weight to value ratio needs to be high. It needs to be you higher. A, a cow is at the opposite end of that spectrum. Again, it's just, well, not the value, well, depends, the depending high, on, right. depending right. on society. Yeah. You're I right. mean, going back as far as we are, they, their, their value per weight was actually quite high, but their total weight was so it's large too that, high without, you know, it's divisible. like you could only buy a house with that cow, you know, anything else wouldn't make sense. Yeah. And by house here, we mean a shelter. As they yeah. would be the kind of things they would be using. And you can see that this is going to develop, as, as we said, as, as society gets more complicated, as production gets more effective, as capital builds up, and thus they're able to create things of more and more value that take longer and longer. And you need to be able to 
purchase things of, of relatively far more value. And this is why societies, virtually every society that had access to them, eventually begins to use gold or silver or a combination. And it wasn't because there was some decree by all these governments that decided this is the ultimate solution. It was because it was the natural solution that when people were trying to trade goods, they wanted them to meet all these criteria. They wanted it to be stable. They wanted it to be valuable. They wanted it to be divisible. They wanted it to be fungible. All of these things were found in these precious metals. And gold and silver worked because they were a number of things. One, there was enough of it that that it would actually make sense as money. And then two, it was rare enough and people actually wanted it independent of money. It was valuable. It was fungible. It was all the same. Any gold is worth the same as that same weight of gold. It's divisible. You can cut it up into smaller pieces and have it still be worth something. Its value per weight was very high and it lasts forever. Right. It doesn't all corrode. Of, you add gold to things so they don't corrode or so they corrode much more slowly. Exactly. All of these things came together with these precious materials, these precious metals, and resulted in them being used as currency. And it's one of those things where it's it wasn't like it was a choice. The reason these two were chosen was because these were what was available. You know, if platinum had been discovered instead, maybe it would have been something different. But the problem is, is that most other precious metals are more difficult to mine and produce and weren't feasible at that time. Right. The different properties just make them less ideal and the, the different rarities. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because... As Brad was saying, this has nothing to do with any decree, any decree. If, if you went into this thinking money is dependent on some government notion, obviously cryptocurrencies are kind of blowing that up right now anyway. But if, if there's any doubt, money develops automatically. And even while people are starting to use gold and silver, they might be using other things. Right? They might be trying to, it's not like there's one thing at any given time. There are likely many things that are accepted as trade. But eventually, all of those things begin to be thought of in terms of gold and or silver. And the reason for this is really easy to say. You don't have to know how many chickens are worth one cow. You don't know, need to know how much anything is worth of something else. It tends to settle on one, at least a very few, different currencies, different types of money, so that you can think of things in terms of that value. And even when you look at the early forms of money... On like the international exchange, you get the British pound sterling and you get the American dollar. How do you negotiate the price of those currencies? How do you compare this money to another? Well, it's really simple because the pound sterling is a pound of silver. And how much is a pound of silver worth? You're not actually wondering how much these currencies are, you know, how the, you don't, you're yeah. not doing any of the modern calculus. You're simply comparing differing weights of gold and silver. And that's what most of it is. And that's why, that's why even coins can evolve naturally out of a market because coins are just consistent weights so that you can conveniently have the amount you want to trade with someone. Someone may want seven ounces of gold for something, right? So you'd be like, well, I'd want maybe a five ounce thing and then a couple one ounce things and so that you can be adaptable and, and trade that way. No, and, and of course, you've, and you've probably seen the little scales that used to be prevalent that that most shops would have because it didn't matter, you know, what kind of coins you had or how how weirdly shaped they were or whether or not they were legitimate. 
that didn't matter as long as they were sure it was the right metal. You know, if they knew this was gold or they knew this was silver, which was relatively easy to verify, then all they had to do was weigh it and they could find out exactly how much you had. Right. And that's where the only role that like coin stamps and things would play was was how credible they were and actually reliably having that that amount. Because it's generally weight. an alloy. It's not usually pure gold or pure silver, right? But it's it's an alloy of some kind. And so you'd and so that's what those are for. And like like you said, it's just it's just a question of weight at that point. Yeah. So the thing is, what happens like with if you most give... good things? <laughs> like with most good things, governments got involved in. Governments got involved, and if this seems like a trite and ongoing theme with us, just just hear us out on this. Don't. This is not mere bias here. This is as historically verifiable as anything we have ever shared. Kings come up with a variety of reasons to control the coinage. Often, it's as simple as they're going to put their faces on it. It turns out that, I mean, you can go all the way back to Rome, and I'm sure even earlier, that money is something that everybody sees. And so if you had a piece of propaganda, something you wanted to convince somebody of, something you wanted to remind somebody of, the money is an excellent place for it. It's, it's a wonderful thing that everybody's going to see and everyone's going to handle. And, and, and so what would happen is, the kings would, you'd get a new king or whatever, and they'd say, we're going to call in all the coins. You give us a hundred of this coin and we will give you a hundred back. This is going to be perfectly fair. All we're doing is we're going to change the stamp on it. Change we're the gonna, face. Yep. We're going to put my face on it because I'm the emperor and go from there. Well, the kings would take it and sometimes they would shave a little off. They would cut a little bit yep. of the metal off as they reheat these and as they reform them. And they call this debasement. They're literally cutting pieces off. And so you'd get the coins back and you'd go, look at this. There's the new face. And maybe it was so subtle you couldn't even feel the weight. But as we noted, everybody is weighing the money because that's what's really important here. Yeah, really, there's two ways that people would react to that, Dan. The one way is people would say, people would realize, hey, these weigh less. And so we're going to just base them off of weight, which means that the king simply stole from us. We gave him 100 pounds of gold, and we got back 95 pounds of gold. And so the king has simply stolen five pounds of gold from me, and however many pounds from you, and down the line. And everyone has been robbed by the king. They understand that. They probably can't do anything about it. And, and they move on knowing they have less. The yes, other and the option, king would use that money in his treasury. Is what exactly. And then the other option is, especially later on, as these coins begin to have value in and of themselves and people are no longer weighing them like they used to, what happens is they get the coins back. And because they're no longer weighing them, they say, hey, I had one gold coin and now I have one gold coin and thus my money supply has not changed. I have the same amount of money that I had before and they continue to spend it as normal, except now the king has his own supply of money that he is going to spend that literally came out of thin air, as it were. Well, not out of thin air, out of your coins, but <laughs> in terms of effect, it's like it came out of thin air because now there are more coins in circulation than there were before masquerading as a set amount of gold. It's as if there's 150 pounds of gold when there's actually only 100 pounds of gold. And that's when you get inflation. Right. So I hope you can see that the first one is clearly robbery, right? The king has literally cut off 
pieces, minted new coins from the, the remnants of everyone else's, and now has money that he literally took from you. Now, the people may or may not perceive that, but whether they do or don't, they have been robbed in some sense. How the market reacts depends on whether they see it, and if they do see it, they can just see that it's robbery. If they don't see it, it, it is what we call inflation, as Brad was saying. And inflation is going to play out a little bit differently than if they perceive it as robbery. But in essence, either way, the same thing has occurred. The same thing has occurred. The money that they have is worth less. How it plays out. And if they don't see it, as Dan said, the money still gets robbed. The difference is, is how long it takes and who gets robbed becomes shifted because those who spend their money first after the transition has been made, before the inflation has begun, are going to get their full value of their money. And those who spend their money later are going to get a reduced value. And so those who spend later will be the ones who get robbed versus those who spend their money right away. Right. I think a poker game is still my favorite analogy to express this idea. What would happen if you you suddenly gave the king is one player in this poker game. Everyone has a certain amount of chips. They hand them to him. He hands them back. They don't realize that he has generated more chips. Now, the person who cashes out is probably going to get all of the money that the chips normally represent. You have $100 of chips, you're going to probably get $100 of money out. But as more people cash out, as more people spend the money on goods, you're going to get less and less for your chips as people realize there's not enough stuff. There's not enough stuff. The money that the chips represent didn't increase, even though the chips did. So at some point, as they realize that, somebody is not going to get what the chips represent. Yeah, That's someone's exactly going, what Someone's going to lose out. Right. Someone's going to lose out. With inflation, the difference that what matters is who spends first. They will get the full amount. The others will not. There's always a ripple effect through the economy with inflation, depending on where the added money goes first. I was about to say, the important thing to note is that the one person who comes out scot-free, and more than scot-free, the one who comes out having made a profit is the king, because the king has created wealth out of your wealth and is now <laughs> profiting from it. Right. And this, is, this should be perfectly clear when you look at what a counterfeiter does. Somebody who counterfeits a dollar bill, we consider them a criminal, right? You, you make, if you print your own money, you're in big trouble. And you go there, you buy something with this fake money. Let's pretend, we'll, we'll pretend in, in the American, American economy, right? We just use dollar bills. If someone counterfeits successfully several million dollars and they go and they spend them, why do we punish that person? Who have they harmed? Who have they harmed? Because they have at, harmed at, someone. At first, it appears like no one. Right, right. Is this, is this a victimless crime? And the answer is, of course not. So the way inflation works is that there is somebody who receives more money than is expected without producing anything. And they spend more than expected. And I, when I say expected, what I mean is the economy responds to two important forces, which are supply and demand. Now, if I'm a shop owner and I'm selling a product I want to sell all of that product I have produced or acquired if I want to maximize my profits. If I have product left over, that's a surplus, and I should order less product. Or I can reduce the price at which I'm selling it to get more people willing to buy it. If I run out of product, I should either 
increase the amount of product I have so I can meet the demand, or I can raise my price. Now, because increasing the amount of product you have isn't always safe, you never know if the, the demand's going to stay that way. And often you have to, you know, factories are usually running at full capacity. You don't have factories that are just sitting around producing 75% of what they can. So often to increase your supply is a, is a massive investment. And you don't want to make that investment if you're not sure whether demand is going to continue at this new increased pace. So printed money basically drives up demand, which leads to shortages, which leads the people who are having these shortages to raise their price. And the result is that the people who spend the money before the shortage in the price raise benefit at the expense of the people who buy after at the new price and thus get less for their money. Let's say you have a small island community of 10 people, me, Dan, and eight others, and we have developed a paper currency and there are a thousand dollar bills. We call them dollars because we have nothing else to call them. So we have a thousand dollars, but they're not American dollars. They're just our little island dollars. And we spend them amongst each other. And some of us are wealthier than others, but we use the dollars to exchange and life goes on. Then all of a sudden, I find a way to produce more of these dollars. And I produce another 2,000 of these dollars and I start spending them. And of course, everyone is more than happy to sell to me because I'm using the dollars that have value, that everyone knows they have value, and they know what that set value is. And I'm able to acquire a large amount of goods from others in my community. And then those people who I purchase things from then go and spend their increased dollars. But very soon, in this small of a community, probably within a day, people realize that there are a ton of dollars, but not enough stuff. Because now I've purchased more than half of the items on the island and everyone is sitting there floating in dollars, in these new dollars, but they don't have any of the stuff. I have a ton of stuff and Dan, who was the first person I sold to, he has a lot of stuff too. And the third person has a fair amount of stuff. And guess what? The last people, the guys who were selling that whole time thinking they were getting rich, all they have is a bunch of dollars and nothing. <laughs> and they have nothing. They're they're sitting on the island. I own four homes now, and they're and they're sitting on the beach trying to think of how to get back to the mainland because they're they're devastated. They're ruined. Right. Those are the shortages that inevitably come from inflation. And obviously it's not going to be, you know, that intense usually. The inflation isn't quite that great. But it does allow you to see it much more clearly. And then as things resupply, they're going to rapidly increase the price. So even if those people hang on to that money until more goods come, more things are produced, the cost of everything's going to be way higher to make up for those shortages. The shop owners will realize I could have charged way more and people would have paid for them, and they'll act accordingly. As the supply and demand moves towards equilibrium, it's related to this illusion we discussed at length in our inflation episode that the people conflate money with stuff and it is not. Money is for stuff. Changing the money does not change the stuff. And the Keynesian multiplier effect, this idea that by increasing the spending, you increase the investment and whatnot, um, is going to end up, what it ends up doing in practice is doing what Brad just described, where you get this redistribution of wealth, where the first people spending the new money get, get more, the people who spend the money shortly after get a little less, and then the people at the end 
get significantly less because the prices have then increased. If you've only got one item left to sell because Brad bought them all, right? You can sell it for more. You raise your prices. And, and to uh, clarify, Dan, they're not getting less benefit from the the inflation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they're getting less for the money they already had. Yes. Which means that what's happening with inflation is the first people are stealing from the later people. Yes. There's a theft that's occurring, and it's occurring through time. It's time travel theft. And <laughs> it is. It is because perceptions have to catch up to it, right? Per we don't. We don't actually know that we've been stolen from until the prices go up, and that's where it's reflected. This is why it's so tricky. Now, when the king is cutting off bits of the money, it's really easy to tell, <laughs> right? You can you can weigh that and you can measure it, but with paper money. What objective thing can you reference? You can't. And this is why, moving on in our historical account of money, governments always want to move to paper. They want to move to paper. Because it allows them to debase the currency easier. Exactly. If the government can get the money first, which they can if they run all the printing presses, right? And then they spend it, and that's how it gets out into the economy or they give it to their favorites, which is how it often works with the Federal Reserve now, and those people get it first, then they can do a lot of the government projects they want without taxing. Basically, it becomes another form of taxation. Now, Dan, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself here because first we got to talk about how this paper currency came to be. Because what happened was not all of a sudden governments were like, you know what, forget gold, forget silver, here's paper instead. That wouldn't have worked. People would not have accepted it. No, Instead, they, they tried. They tried. The Mongols it, tried. And no one would take it. And no one would take it. Instead, <laughs> They're like, are you kidding? Yeah, we don't want your paper. Instead, <laughs> what they did is they said, listen, the government has $100 billion in gold. And now they're going to print out $100 billion worth of notes. And any of those notes are redeemable for gold. And they actually were. People could actually take those notes in and get gold back. And the longer that went on, that people could actually get real gold for those notes, the more value people ascribed to the notes. You know, when they first came out, they were probably worth, you know, a mere fraction of what they said they were worth. But as time went on and the, and the government didn't back down on what they said they would do, people actually began to trust them. And there began to be a trust in paper currency because it was backed by something that people actually valued. And once that happened, once it achieved that point, then these governments were able to once again debase it, like they did with the gold coins that people learned over time to, to trust and to value. And they were able to reduce the supply of gold because not everyone was asking for gold. They would have their paper notes and trade them and use them without ever asking for gold because they didn't actually want gold. They want the things they can buy with money. But that's what everyone wants. <laughs> right, and so right. as long as the paper notes worked, people would use them. But right. if governments debased their currency too much, if they no longer gave people gold for their paper currency, paper money, then the paper money would fall apart. It would no longer be money. Right. And you can you can see how this would happen, right? You got a bunch of politicians sitting around. They owe a ton of people money. And it's not like today where that debt is per can be perpetually maintained, which is 
which is another story. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've got people, creditors, actually calling on you who you owe money and you've got two options. You can raise taxes and the people will hate you and elect someone else. Or you could have a simple vote. And you can vote about how the money is treated and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Which one of these is your, is your preferred method? Can you see how that temptation, that power mm-hmm. is just like, like, just look at all the projects that we fund today. Now, the vast majority of them are funded exactly this way, just without the reference to gold, because we've, we've discarded that at this point. It's by inflation rather than debasement, but they, in practice, they have the same effect. And that's, that's where this. Yeah, it's, it's still debasement. It's still it's, debasement. It's, it has the same effect as debasement. It's just, it just plays out differently. The and, only yeah. reason it's technically not debasement is because our currency is baseless. You can't <laughs> right. debase a baseless currency. <laughs> right, right. And in terms of, and so, yeah, technically, maybe the word doesn't apply, but in practice, it's the same. It means idea. the same thing. It means the same thing. And yeah, so you get the first time in US history we ended up with paper money. It's actually the first time in Western history that we've ended up with paper currency. That we ended up with paper currency that was not backed by anything. <laughs> right. That was you, not an IOU for gold that was sitting in a vault. Right. You. It began attached to a certain amount of silver. And it began as a way to pay soldiers, and as you said, an IOU, because they didn't end up having the money necessary to pay these soldiers they had hired. And they said, we're going to, you can redeem this in this amount after this time. It was literally an IOU. And honestly, that's how paper notes began. Initially, initially paper currency was an IOU from a bank. And, and every bank would issue their own IOUs, their own, you could, this is redeemable. It's basically a check, what we use for checks today, um, is, is kind of the same idea. But then you get this, the government doing this, and they've guaranteed it. But it comes, you know, the time comes, they still don't have the money. And so what do they do? They debase the currency. They reduce how much it's worth and they, they, they further the IOU. We're going to pay you this much later. And eventually, you can see how this process would go as they kick the can down the, down the road. If you don't know what that looks like, tune into uh, any session of Congress ever. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's little incentive for people to own up to, to their issues in Congress because of because they're only there for a brief time. They're part of a group and diffused responsibility and so on. So they, they then kicked it on down the road until eventually it was literally worth no, nothing because no one believed them. No one, no one thinks that they're actually going to pay this that back. They were ever going to, to redeem it as they promised they would because they never did. They, they never, never did. They never said, okay, here's the precious metals as promised for these notes. Right, right. Again, and that wasn't the only time that happened in the United States. <laughs> no, this is this is the first of many times this happened in the United States. For a lot of the United States history, we didn't have a, a formal paper currency. But people probably didn't. That may be news to some people. And the times that we did were all terrible. So we get the Continental during the Revolution, and you can guess the story by the by the common phrase. People begin to use it as a as a kind of cliche to compare things. It's an idiom, not worth a continental, because again, the government wouldn't in good faith maintain the, keep the promises to pay the people the, the gold and silver they had promised. 
again during the War of 1812. The government, and, and they're not just making these for fun, by the way. It's usually in times of debt and in times of war. Yeah, it's in times of need where the government has these huge expenses and they're, they don't have enough income to pay for it. That, does that sound familiar to anyone? No? Not at all? <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> that, any, any analogy to, to today? How are we doing on our payments? Uh, <laughs> so you get to the War of 1812 and you get the same story. You get to the Civil War, the same story. They were called the Greenbacks. Again, eventually they become literally worthless. Where, where no one wants them. The demand for the money becomes zero because no one believes that they'll, they're worth anything and they're going to be redeemed, and they're right. Well, and so what's interesting about this, Dan, what's interesting about this is that at each time during, during these events, there were alternative currencies. There were alternative currencies from other nations, but primarily what there was was gold and silver that was being freely exchanged for goods and services that these paper currencies were being compared against. These they, they were looking at it and they were like, you've got gold and silver money, which is worth this, and then you've got this paper money, which is worth considerably less. And as there became more of the paper money, it became less and less held up against that standard. And that's what caused these currencies to be stopped to stop people from using them completely, for them to literally disappear was because people had other options. Which is why, which is why the United States had to keep going back to having paper currency that was backed by gold. And they did after these times, you know, after the War of 1812, after the Civil War, they yeah, went back to a gold-based currency that people knew had actual value. Yeah, the greenback actually does make its way back to a, a gold and silver standard eventually. But exactly, for a time because it is entirely because worthless. it because it needed to in order to maintain value. <laughs> right. They they had to attach it to something other than people's faith in their ability to pay it back. <laughs> they, they needed some kind of guarantee and to attach it to gold and silver does that. To a degree, right? Because at any moment the government could change that. They can, they can be like, you know, and never mind. because even when it's attached to gold and silver, they can still debase it. But there are limits on how much they can debase it. Unlike right. a currency that has no backing, there's, there's no, there's no limit. Yeah, you can't no weigh limit. it. You can't weigh exactly. it. Just like the people in the market would weigh it before, people would look at it in its relation to gold and silver, and they would ask, you know, wait, how much is this worth in terms of gold and silver? That's a, that's a kind of weighing. It's an objective. More objective, right? The prices of gold and silver vary, but it's a more objective way to consider what the actual value is. Which brings us to the turn of the century and the 1900s. And this is where things get interesting because it's now been quite a while that the dollar has been backed by gold and the dollar has gotten incredibly strong. It's gotten such a solid reputation that it begins to be used all over the place as the form of money. And so what happens is people have for so long valued this money as money that almost no one is turning it in for gold, even though you still can. And so the government says, hey, why do we have this gold sitting here if it's not doing anything? This is pointless. So what we're going to do is we're going to stop using gold as currency at all. And we're going to get rid of the gold backing for the dollar. And you can no longer redeem that dollar for gold. But 
these dollars are still here and they're still the same amount. And so you can continue to spend them as you were before. And they pulled it off. The, 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 the strength of the United States government, the clout that it had was strong enough that over a period of years and over a period of legislation, they were able to do that. They were able to get rid of the gold standard. And I'm talking not a few years, but I'm talking a matter of 60 years, you know, from start to finish for this (laughs) process. This This did not happen overnight. There were a series of things that happened, a series of, of cornerstones that were laid down years before that allowed this to happen. Yeah, which is so interesting because by the end of that period, you get everybody nodding along, right? Not everybody, but a significant enough people that it went off, like you said, that that people didn't start immediately rejecting it and things like that, that it that it maintained its international status. To do that, you have to convince a lot of people because you look at like some of the founders, people like Madison were incredible students of history. And they had some opinions on paper money that were rather strong. And they were based on exactly the kind of things we're discussing, (laughs) where they'd go, let's see, every time a government gets control of the currency in any way, it debases it. Now, they believed that it was necessary for the government to have control of it, that they had to, they had to make, that they, they could do the coining and the weights and the measures. But not that they could actually control it and debase it and, and do these other kind of things. They lacked, they did not want them to have that authority. And they hated paper money. Some of the things, some of the things that people at the time wrote about Massachusetts and their paper money scheme were, were pretty funny. They, they thought it was, they, so many of them could see it from miles away. And if you look at the history of paper money up until the modern era, you would conclude that every time this leads to government abuse, this is this is one of the most sure things in history. <laughs> like the trend is that the government robs you and that that's what paper money and that's what them messing with the coinage ends up with. And that this is this is as sure a thing as anything in history. And yet here we are. And to do that, you have to convince people, like you said, over 60 years, series of small changes and a massive change in economic theory. And that economic theory depends on the fact that they tell you that what's good for society is fundamentally different than what's good at the individual level. So we've said before, what is good for you and your family? Obviously, it's not massive spending and debt and you're not supposed to be printing money. But (laughs) you get to a big enough level and somehow all of the rules, all of the principles that should govern wise investment and growth into prosperity flip on their head. And that is the great lie of modern economics that we bought. Well, we've bought it over a course of decades, but mm-hmm. that primarily you want to, you want to see the big shift. It's back in the, the new deal with FDR and Keynesian economics, which is why we refer to it at times because it, it's created the economy as it is now, even when you could look back and do a study through history and say, this seems like a bad idea. It seems like it's going to debase the currency. It seems like what we've done is we've given permission to a body that what we've done is we've we've said to one person, to one group of people, the Federal Reserve, you have permission to counterfeit because counterfeiting is good for society. Because counterfeiting is good for society, even though it's going to be robbing some people. But but it's it's 
really going to benefit us a lot. You know, it's crazy, Dan, because we've reached this stage where we had to have a podcast episode where we argued that inflation was bad. <laughs> which which means that we had an episode when you put it that way it's uh, where where we had to argue and we had to come up with reasons to explain to you why the government indirectly stealing from you was bad and was not for your benefit because the idea that inflation is not a pernicious evil but is in fact as Dan said good for society is so prevalent today the, the number of articles i've read that are either arguing that inflation is good or they'll argue what amount of inflation is good. You know, how what should mm-hmm. the Federal Reserve do to hit that, their that target sweet inflation spot that be. Yeah. in terms of inflation to keep the economy going? That's just the world we live in. It's become accepted. It's become accepted that this is the system that works. It's as if we went back and and philosophers and pundits would discuss Every time a new king came into office, you know, how much gold should he clip off? What's the perfect amount of gold that he can clip off of our coins to really get this economy going? You know, if he cuts the coins in half, would that be the right amount? Or should it be just 30%? And they'd go back and they'd argue about it. And they'd be like, yeah, if he just took 30% of our money, that would be perfect. That would really get the economy going. That's, that's where we are. That's where we live right now. It is. We, Brad and I are butt men. We are butt men. That sounds weird. <laughs> Brad and I are just ordinary people. And we try really hard to give as good reasons for everything we're arguing and try to, try to take into account counter arguments and things and as, as best as we can. And we're, we're, we're mere human here. But, but this, of all of the issues we've discussed, this is the one where I feel like surely, Surely we could win this argument. Surely society could be convinced that having the value of their money reduced is bad for them. Right? <laughs> that this is actually not good for them. And that this is actually good for the people who get the new money at their expense. And and you should clarify when you're talking about money that it may not be your money that's being reduced in terms of, of the yes. numerical value of the money, yes. but it's about the purchasing power. The purchasing power of your money is getting reduced, you know, regardless of what's happening to your total supply of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You because may have the same amount of dollars in the bank, but it's it's going to buy you less. Because that's the whole point of money is to get stuff, you know, and that was the point of that island example is it doesn't matter how much money you have if you can't buy anything with it. What good does it do you? Yeah, and you can just imagine the king who's like, what if I could convince everybody this was good for them? Wouldn't that be sick? Wouldn't that be the greatest <laughs> thing that's ever happened to me? The greatest con in the history of money. The greatest con in the history world. And I really think that this is the greatest con in the history of the world. And it's not close. It's not close. This is the greatest theft and robbery that has ever happened in human history and it comes from those revered institutions known as federal reserves and the economic lies that they've spent, that have been spread and and one more thing that i want to say in regards to this cuz cuz the way dan's talking about it makes it sound like a big deal and some of you may ask well inflation rate is kept at you know 2 3% every year which is such a minor amount how is this the greatest con of all time it's not a big deal that 3% number is just a lie it's just a lie. There's, 
there's <laughs> there's really there's really no truth to it. If it were just the three percent, it would be devastatingly bad. You know, if you go and you look up an inflation calculator, which is based off of those official numbers, and you look at how much your money was worth twenty years ago to how much it's worth now, it'll make you never want to save again. <laughs> but the problem is, the problem is, is that 3% is a lie. There's so many different ways that that the true number is obfuscated. I mean, for example, first of all, that 3% is artificially calculated. And how they calculate it, what they do is they put goods in a basket and say, these are the goods by which we're going to rate how much money has inflated but those goods are chosen and by choosing different goods you can manipulate that number yeah you can make it say whatever you would want to say the the other thing that we haven't even addressed there's so many things we'd love to address that we don't have time (laughs) in this episode to address the other thing that needs to be addressed is consumers demand for money how much people value having the money in their bank accounts in their hands and that changes and when that changes it can actually hide the effects of inflation because people's increased desire for money means they sit on more of it, which simply de- delays the effect of inflation even longer. You know, it actually puts that timeline off even farther so that you don't see the effect for longer. Yeah, um, the shortages don't reveal themselves until people start spending the money. And then you yes. realize that, the, that there is an imbalance between the prices. The prices are too low for the demand and the demand is high because of new money and that's something that you'll see with with covid with this last year is that because of covid because of the pandemic because of the struggling economy that had a significant effect on people's choices and that is going to affect what happens in terms of inflation that's a real effect to have the entire country look at things differently the same thing happens during war when the government will inflate but that inflation will be hidden by by people's skewed choices because of the wartime shortage of many different things. But anyways, those are just some examples yeah. of how <laughs> inflation tangents here that are so good. <laughs> how how inflation is is hidden. You know, another thing that we that we didn't really get a chance to address is fractional reserve banking. And fractional reserve banking is one of those things that we don't have half an hour and so I don't want to get too far into it. But it's another way that through the Federal Reserve System, through centralized banking, that then backs up these other banks and allows them to have a reserve of 0% when they they loan out money. And I choose 0% because in March of last year, the Fed changed the requirements and got rid of the reserve requirement (laughs) for deposit accounts for banks. It is now 0%. So when you have your checking account with your bank, so I I bank with U.S. Bank, I have a checking account, that money that I have, U.S. Bank is required to physically have, not just to physically have zero of that money. They don't have to have any of it. They could take my $1,000 that I deposit and they could immediately give it to someone else and keep zero of it on hand. 
and they could do that with all of their deposit accounts if they so choose. That's that's the setup right now that the Federal Reserve has, along with the promise that the Federal Reserve will bail them out if they need it. <laughs> right. I was just going to say, that's the key and corollary, those, right? And, but they and don't want to do that, right? Because there'll together, be a run on their bank. Oh, no, the Federal Reserve will bail them out if that's what happens. Exactly, because if, because if, if the Federal Reserve wasn't there and the U.S. Bank had zero reserves, then as soon as I ask for my money – it creates a problem. But as long as we have the Federal Reserve there, that at any point the U.S. Bank can then go and say, and I say U.S. Bank, it's confusing because it's not the U.S. <laughs> bank. It's U.S. Bank, the private company. U.S. Bank can go and get any reserves they need, then there is no problem. And they can, and they can go and they can continue to have these very low reserves. And what that means is there's more money in existence because now I have money and someone else also has my money and we're all spending this money that no one actually has. It's really confusing. And if I had a half an hour, I could we go could through go step by step. And at some point we probably will. But right we now we don't want to we don't want to focus on banking. We want to focus what money is for and why it's become so corrupted. And I hope we're making a good argument here. If we're missing something, if there's something you're like, well, why are you not addressing this? Let us please, know. Yeah, please Let do. us know so that we can address it because we're trying to make a logical, right. thorough argument here. But there's a thousand things we could talk about and we have to address 10 of them. Right. <laughs> right. And so if, if, if there, you feel like there was one that was key that we didn't get to here, as Brad said, we're going we're gonna to definitely hit this topic many times in, from different angles. If you're, we've talked about uh, conspiracy theorists, right? And how there's, there's the people who begin to suspect everything and they, they pull back from the world. They get into this this rabbit hole of, I can't trust anything. And part of that's right. You should be very careful <laughs> with what you trust, right? Some but healthy a, skepticism. Right. But there's a difference. There's a big difference between that and, and a kind of conspiracy theory. But if you think that, that there are no good conspiracy theories, that, there's no, that, there, that nobody conspires to do things, I want you to go see who sits on the board of the Federal Reserve. Because it sounds like the banks benefit from this relationship, right? If, if they're guaranteed by the Federal Reserve, well, well, that would make it really dangerous, right? Then if the banks were involved directly with the Federal Reserve. Oh, wait, the Federal Reserve Board is made up of key people from the major banks? <laughs> oh, this, this seems fine. No conflict of interest. You know, something we haven't talked about here, Dan, is regulatory capture. <laughs> and that is what regulatory capture is in a nutshell, where the businesses that are being regulated are also directly involved in and end up having a control of those regulatory bodies. Yeah. yeah. And the banking system, man, pulled this off like no other industry ever has because they designed it from the top down. JP Morgan was asked to help set up the whole system. And you get this. Which brings us back to what's relevant today, right? Cryptocurrencies is, is kind of where we started this off. Now that we know something about currencies, money. Are cryptocurrencies good money? Let's go through our quick list here. Are they lightweight? Well, yeah, they're digital. They're digital. <laughs> they're not even a physical object. Are they inherently valuable? No. Not really. No. Are they fungible? Yes, they're fungible for the same reason. They're, I mean, anything that doesn't really physically exist is fairly fungible and doesn't actually have a utility that lessens when you divide it. Pretty fungible. Easily divisible? Sure, I guess you could sell half a Bitcoin. 
stable because of their value, <laughs> their inherent value is the price pretty stable. Well, if you look at, even if you look at gold and silver right now, they look anything but stable. And maybe that's okay because people are bailing from the instability of the normal money to these other ones. But as far as like, would I say that a cryptocurrency is a good example of, of, of a currency that has the features that you, that naturally developed, right? That, that just people trying to figure out what worked came to that turned them to gold and silver in the first place? No. And no. here's another good litmus test for it, Dan. Lots of places accept cryptocurrency, but people who, who purchase cryptocurrency with US dollars, are they doing it so they can go buy a coffee at Starbucks? Are they doing it so they can spend that money as a currency? No, they are only holding it because they know the value is going to increase. Right. It's, and it's that is not value. the mm -hmm. sign of of a money that's being used as money. It's the sign of speculation, which is different. And that's something that, as Dan said, you've seen even with gold and silver, that people are now speculating on gold and silver. And the reason they're doing it, as Dan said, is because people have lost faith in the dollar combined with all of the conservative ads on conservative talk radio. <laughs> right, on gold but, for decades. But but they're doing it because they've lost faith in the dollar. But what that means is that gold is no longer a stable money supply. If you purchase gold now with the intention of buying something with it tomorrow, that gold could be worth twice as much as it is today or half as much. And, and that's not what you need from a currency. That's not what you want to pay employees with. That's not what you want to, to, to do all of the things you use money for. All it's good for is holding on to, is saving, which is not the worst thing in the world. Right. Which is not the worst thing in the world. It's just so, not so what you now, do with money. <laughs> it's not what you do with money. It's speculation. So it, the question becomes, is cryptocurrency a good investment? Yes. Not, is it a good money? Because as it stands right now, it's not money. It's, it's not a question of, is it good money or bad money? It's simply not. It's not being used as money. Gold is not being used as money. Silver is not being used as money. And cryptocurrency is not being used as money, at least here in the United States. You know, right, there you are get, other places yeah. where gold and silver are being used, but not here. Could it become viable at some point? Yes. Any of those three could be viable. Right. Could, could paper money become viable? If you never manipulated it, yes, absolutely. The yeah. U.S. dollar could be incredibly viable if you just left it alone. If you left its weight ratio to the, the the problem, the problem with paper money is that there aren't a lot of natural checks and balances to make sure it stays that way. Right. With there, cryptocurrency, it seems like there could be, and so maybe there is some hope down the road for that becoming some form of viable currency. I wouldn't. In, I, I. I would be be hesitant in investing in cryptocurrency because of how speculative it is. Absolutely, don't just sink everything into cryptocurrencies, <laughs> right. thinking they're the future. But they do offer a glimmer of hope on alternative currencies that can be used as money that are different from what we have now. And that competition is absolutely healthy. Yes, we want that. We want people to be looking for alternatives because this. Money as it is right now, the American dollar is not a good place to hold, doesn't hold value. You want to, you want to turn that into stuff. You turn that into stocks. You turn that into other things. Obviously, you have to have a certain amount of liquid funds, actual cash on hand or in a bank account. 
And, but the less of that you can have in, if you could have that in a different currency, different money that were more stable, that'd be way better. And as soon as there are better alternatives, even better than the cryptocurrencies and things that we have, I think the dollar is going to quickly disappear because you'll add all of the inflationary effects to the fact that less, that fewer and fewer people actually want it. And at that point, the dollar is done. As soon as we have a real viable alternative, I think the dollar is going to be history. Or they go back to a gold standard of some kind, some kind of connecting it to another commodity that actually gives it a, more of an Yeah, some kind bottom. of surety to make sure that they don't manipulate right. it. And will I believe them when they do that? No, I will not. Hopefully there's an alternative <laughs> because the history of governments and money is a history of debasement. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 33 of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on any of the major podcasting apps. You can also reach us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can reach us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. Or you can email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com with any questions you may have or or things that we missed in this episode in particular or any other episode, we'd be happy to reach out to you. And with that, thanks again and have a wonderful day.